Hi, this is Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, and welcome to another edition of the Nebraska Way, where it's all about how Nebraska is growing and more. And this episode, we've got another great guest, Trev Alberts, who's the athletic director for the University of Nebraska. And uh, obviously, University of Nebraska sports are a big deal in Nebraska, so we're very excited to have you here. And Trev, as always, I'm going to go through your bio and kind of give people a little highlight. Then we're going to talk about some of the fluffy background stuff, and then we're going to get into the tough questions. (laughs) I'll do my best, Governor. All right, good. (laughs) All right. So, obviously, you're the vice chancellor of athletics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So, okay, so they they wrote down like, oh, veteran administrator, veteran administrator, (laughs) but we'll get into that in a second. Okay, so I'm going to skip some of this other stuff because I want to get into the juicy stuff, but... So you were Nebraska's first Butkus Award winner in 1993 when you helped Tom Osborne make a, an Orange Bowl appearance against Florida State. That's pretty cool, right? It was wonderful, yep. Charlie McBride was our defensive coordinator, and I benefited from a great scheme and a, a bunch of great players around me. Cool. And then you were also a first-team All-American by every major publication in 1993. You also made a Big 8 Male Athlete of the Year, Big 8 Defensive Player of the Year, and Football News National Defensive Player of the Year. Your number 34 jersey was retired at the 1994 Red-White Spring Game. In 2015, you were elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. So that was a pretty good career at college, right? Mm -hmm. And then off the field, you earned NCAA's highest honor, the Today's Top Six Award. You're also a three-time academic All-Big Eight honoree. You graduated from University of Nebraska before you're a senior citizen because I'm kind of an overachiever there. You were a fifth pick in the 1994 NFL draft by the Indianapolis Colts. And, and that's where there. I was an underachiever. And there you were an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw you were there until 1996, so you had to be okay to get there that far. And then you went on TV as a, an analyst for college and pro football games on several sports networks. And then, of course, came back to Nebraska where you were the athletic director of the University of Nebraska of Omaha and helping him through a transition to Division One sports mm-hmm. with uh, hockey, right? Yep. So moving on from football and wrestling into right. hockey. So tough decision there. So you're used to tough decisions. We'll get to those later. Your wife, Angie, how long have you and Angie been married? 26 years. 26 years. you got three kids. Yep. Chase, Chase, Chase Ashton, and Brianna. And, and now Chase is married, right? Chase is married to Cassie. Okay, so yep. now how old is Chase? Chase is 25. Okay, and how old are Ashton and Brianna? Ashton is 22, and Brianna is a freshman in college. So okay, she's, so you're almost empty nesters. You're getting there. We're empty nesters. Well, she's going to come back from college. Just so well, you know. yeah. I mean, okay, we only are have one left the, on the payroll. Still, are you still paying the cell phone bills? Oh, yes. They're not, you're not empty nesters yet because as long as you're paying a cell phone bill, they're okay, liable to come good home. Good point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, so, but you actually, you're not from Nebraska originally, right? You're from right. Iowa. Yep. So let's take us back to, you know, where are you from in Iowa? How did you decide on Nebraska and a little bit about your Nebraska career? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and both my mom and dad grew up as farm kids in northeast Iowa, and my dad met my mom, my late mother, Linda, and at a church Bible conference, oh, and cool. uh, always he was the only boy in the family, and so, you know, grandfather worked his whole life to be able to have a farm to give to his son and to continue on the farming tradition, and my lovely mother informed him, I, I'm interested in you as well, but I don't want to be a farmer's wife. Yeah, and so my dad panicked as a senior in high school and, and ended up going to the University of Northern Iowa and, and got his accounting degree. And so it was a really interesting upbringing. My dad was the general manager of the Cedar Falls Utility Company, and, but also we farmed on the side. And so when my grandfather got sick and, and unfortunately died at an early age, oh, I'm sorry. Our, our, our sort of upbringing was we lived in Cedar Falls, we lived in town, and then after school and on Saturdays, we ran out 35 miles to the farm and and did a corn and soybeans farm. And then we had a tenant who uh, farrowed hogs. And so I felt like I kind of had the best of both worlds. Yeah. You know, I got, got both experiences. So. so how'd you pick University of Nebraska? Well, you know, we grew up, and it's hard for me to say this sometimes, but we were diehard Iowa Hawkeye fans. And I will tell you, part of the reason for that is because when Hayden Fry came, you know, Iowa football was really at a low point. Right. And he really embraced agriculture in the state of Iowa. And, you know, probably it's well-known about the American needs farmers on their helmets. And that meant a lot to my dad and because he was very proud of our agricultural roots. And I always intended and thought, gosh, if I could ever go to Iowa. I mean, we, we were big enough fans. We actually take, took the family van and drove to Atlanta to go to a bowl game, the Peach Bowl, just as a family. But, you know, was recruited by Iowa. But uh, Nebraska at that point was just at a totally different level. <clears throat> we were a top we, five program. Yeah, we were, yeah. we were, you know, trying to get to the national championships and and play and win a national championship. But, but really, ultimately, it was, uh, it was one person. 
Tom know, Osborne came Tom and recruited Osborne. you? Yeah. And just the way he carried himself, his values, what he believed in. It was pretty obvious that football was really important to the state of Nebraska, and that meant a lot to me so as well. So did he come visit you? He did. And so what was that like? So when he came to your house, like, was your mom and dad there? Was oh, it just yeah. you? Well, the truth of the matter is, you know, Nebraska was, it seemed, so far out of reach for me as a student athlete. And they came kind of late into the recruiting game uh, that, that when John Melton, the late John Melton, who was a linebacker coach, he re- actually recruited me. When he came to Cedar Falls and, and told my family that they would like to offer me a scholarship, we really, we didn't believe him. <laughs> and my dad... Really? Trev's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> my dad said, well, if... if if Nebraska's really serious about Trev, wouldn't Coach Osborne come? In? Oh, man. So two days later, Coach Osborne and Ron Brown came to Cedar Falls. And, of course, my parents were so excited. And we went to the – it's not there anymore, but there was a restaurant called the Broom Factory. And my mom had it all set up. And we had a red and white tablecloth. And, you know, I think we were recruiting them as much as they were recruiting me. But So, yeah, he came to Cedar Falls and was in our home. And, and I remember taking a picture in front of the fireplace – I was pretty small in those days, and there was Ron Brown, Tom Osborne, and me, and I was I was the smallest of the three. Wow! And it looked a little odd that they were recruiting me to play football, but just unique, especially on the defense. Especially on the defense, but it was really one of Coach Osborne's signature gifts. I think was to be able to identify not where you were today, but project with our development program at Nebraska. Where could you be? Where, where could you be? Yeah. And so I would say, you know, if you look today. I'm not sure that I would be recruited or a guy like Terry Keneally to some of these programs because we wouldn't be on list. Right. You know, we wouldn't have those stars because we weren't developed. But Nebraska had a really you know, um, singular focus around development and talent identification. And they sold us. And what Coach Osborne sold me on, Pete, was if you come to Nebraska, every single component of your student-athlete experience, everything, we have a plan for, we have people for, and we have resources for. All you have to do is work. Oh, okay. And if you're right, willing you work, to work, right. you'll max out. Yeah. Athletically, and for a farm kid, right? Or kind of a farm kid, part-time farm kid. I knew like, how to work. You knew how to work, exactly. You know, I like to work. Yeah. And so I'm like, wow. And my experience was everything he told me was actually true. It was authentic. It was real. And I could believe him. And there were a lot of us that had an opportunity to look back and say, wow, I, I ended up maxing out in those key areas like academics and and you know, not just football, but life skills and those things outside that have a much broader impact for you as you move forward in life. And so that's, you know, the things that I'm telling, you know, prospective student athletes now across the board. And because it's evolved, now we have mental health, right? We have the NAPL, we have nutrition, there's so many more components to that experience. But I believe the University of Nebraska is positioned to continue to be able to, in a, a real and genuine way, make that commitment to prospective student-athletes. Cool. Very good. Yeah. So, obviously, you were a force on the black shirts, and but you didn't start out that way, right? No. So I tried to transfer. You did try to, you tried to transfer? <laughs> well, what happened? It, it happens to, to every student-athlete. The reality is that the tough transition is you're, you're, you're a star in high school. Right. You're probably the biggest guy in the team. Right. You're stronger, you're faster, you're tougher, and so it comes a little bit more naturally. And when you go to a place like Nebraska, I mean, I was ninth team right outside linebacker when I got here. Wow. Remember, we had that walk-on program where you had guys that maybe weren't quite as tall or quite as fast, but they'd been in the system three years. And so their strength, and I was 6'4", 209 pounds. I'd never, we didn't even have a weight room in my high school. Hmm. And I got through my freshman year and, and I just wanted to play so bad. And there was so much talent in that room. And I asked for a meeting, you know, with Coach Osborne, and, and I just said, Coach, you know, I, I just want you to be honest with me. I mean, am I good enough to play here? And it's fine if I'm not. I'm not offended. Yeah. I just have four years to play a game right. I love. And I, and, you know. And I want to actually be on the field. I want to be on the field. And he said, well, Trev, I mean, you know, you did just get Big 8 Freshman of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can play. And so I just needed that affirmation from yeah. him that, you know, that, that I could continue to grow. And so we, we all go through that. You have to make a decision. I went through it. Uh, it was one night after training, after our study table. It was about 9.30, pitch dark, and I'm walking through the stadium on the way back to Abel Hall, 903 Abel Hall is where I stayed. And, and I just, I, I just I said to myself, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to, play here or whether I can do it, but I, I just committed to, 
doing everything I could and paying the price necessary to be successful. But but every student athlete goes through that because right. it's hard. Yeah. It really is. Right. Absolutely. So you just talked about a story with uh, Coach Osborne. Are there other stories that stick out to you or th- lessons that he taught you personally or personal stories you have about Coach Osborne? You know, I you know, he, he wasn't – it was just his walk, Pete, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think the thing I appreciated most about him was um, he – he he did he was who he purported to be you know it's, mm-hmm. you know and, and you're better off just be who you are even if in, don't try to be somebody else and when he told us things it actually happened he was very real very authentic but he you know I was scared to death of him I mean, <laughs> and he never yelled well, he never at yells <laughs> he never yelled at anybody he never I was never cursed at once in my uh, well not by him uh, <laughs> uh, as a coach. But his attention to detail and his singular focus on discipline and everything we did, you know, you, you wouldn't dare be two minutes late to a team meeting. And not that anybody yell at you, but when the room stopped and he looked at you, I mean, it was just this feeling of not wanting to let him down. Right. And uh, I think it was just the way he lived his personal life that you, it was pretty, pretty hard to emulate and just had just this genuine respect and admiration he was paying the price personally mm-hmm. in that role, and it made the rest of us motivated to try to, you know, to do a similar effort. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, like I said, you went on to become a black shirt, major force on the defense. What were some of the lessons that came out of that program that you were then able to apply, like mm-hmm. life lessons, that you were able to apply down the road in your career, not just in the, you know, the nuts and bolts of football, but just the nuts and bolts of life? Well, unity of purpose. There was a, a very clearly communicable vision around everything we were doing. Everybody knew what their role was, and everybody was accountable to that role. And that wasn't just a football team. Mm-hmm. Everybody who touched football, it's kind of interesting as we're going through what we're going through now, I've been reaching out to some colleagues and, and coaches who aren't candidates, but just who I respect of how they've built. And there's a similar theme to that. Yeah. And the successful ones have a very clearly communicable vision. And everybody who touches football is involved in that sort of, you know, collective vision. And every one of those people are valued. And, you know, Coach did such a tremendous job of it didn't matter if you were the custodian who cleaned the locker room for everybody felt like if they they were part of the team. And if they didn't perform their role at an elite level and a high level, we weren't going to be successful as a team. And so I, I thought... You know, I thought that was uh, really, really important, the unity of purpose. Work ethic, you know, we talked often about being willing to pay a bigger price than the other person. Mm-hmm. How important is this to you? Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you know, talent is a real issue. But so many times in life, I mean, yeah, we may have a few people like you, Peter, who are way up here. And, you know, <laughs> but, you know. Uh, no, actually, I never played football at the college level. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I, high school level, for that matter. But, but, you know, just in our society, mm-hmm. you might have some people that have been gifted by God in areas that maybe a lot aren't. But the reality is the vast majority of us comes down to work ethic and what price are you willing to pay and how important is it to you? And how disciplined are you in, you know, living out your values every day? Because we all are challenged, you know, with... Will we stay true to what we purport to believe in? So it was just, it was those types of things that, you know, Coach was, was just so good at. And, and he, he just, he's just tough. He's a tough person. Yeah. And I'm, you know, not so much physically tough, but his mental toughness, his uh, consistency, I would say, is a, is a big word. He was the same person every single day. And it's a hard, it's a hard example to live up to, but it's something that's been very meaningful to me. Oh, cool. So then you got drafted by the Colts. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. Well, that was an interesting experience. You know, I mean, you know, we, we came from a place like Nebraska where there was such a, a commitment to serving young people, you know, whether it be the, the training table, strength and conditioning, every single area. And when I got to the NFL, and it's a lot different now, it's unfair to say this about the Colts now, right. you know, but there were certain organizations back in those days that just hadn't made the commitment. Right. To and not understanding that the people were the most valuable resource. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so, you know, you found yourself, there was an indoor practice facility. So there's a little piece of turf, and here you are, you know, it's a blizzard out there. And, and you know, I remember going in my fresh or my freshman, my rookie year, yeah. eight games into the season, and my knee pad had a hole in it. And I asked for a new knee pad, and, and they said, well, I'm sorry, we, we're, we're out of those, and we won't be getting any more this year. So you'll just have to. So it's just a totally different commitment. A professional team? Yeah. 
Holy you know, you'd go into cow, the weight yeah. room yeah. and there was a chalkboard and the strength coach would, you know, well, at Nebraska, it was all computerized. There was a right. lot of science and, you know, and it, it just was shocking to me. That is stunning, though, that a it, professional it was, football yeah. team, which presumably would have the resources to, say, have computers or Well, they certainly do Just now. kind of basic stuff like knee pads, right? Yeah. I mean, now I'm sure, right, it's different. Oh, but. it's totally different, you know, and, and the Colts are a really well-run organization. But uh, in those days, it was just a little bit different. And so it just it felt like and, – and for me, what was hard was football was never a business. Football was a game that I loved that I love to play with a group of guys that I cared about. You know, that was the other thing that Coach and Coach McBride were really good at, yeah. is helping you understand about playing for the person next to you. Yeah, You're not just playing for yourself, but you can't let Pete down, who's standing next to you in a three, three technique. And at the NFL, oh, I can just tell you a story. I, I, my first game I went into, I, I didn't get signed until about 10 days in, uh, into camp. So the, the first preseason game that I played in, I'd only been to camp for three days, and so my coach said, you know, do you want to start or, you know. First of all, I'd never been asked if I wanted to start. Normally the coach tells you what you'll be right. doing. But I remember he, I went in the second quarter, and, and I ran in, like, you know, excited and in college, and I don't even know what I said, but, you know, let's go. And I was kind of excited, and I won't say his name, but a, a gentleman who had, in his 13th year in the league. Okay, rookie. Looked at right. down and he said, shut up, rookie. Yeah. Just do your job. Yeah. So it's just it was a different feel, and right. um, I. That's not exactly a bu- team building comments to make. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but that's the NFL. The NFL yeah. is a business. It's you know not for long. You know yeah. that's what it stands for. NFL yeah, not for long. Not for long, right? And with, so you with go the in. Average career is four years. Uh, it's three and a half. Three and a half. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a difficult. It's a man's game, and and I didn't transition well at all. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be tough. And actually, you know, you mentioned about the Colts, and I, I was just thinking back on our experience with the Cubs. And it was kind of the same thing, actually. If you look at the facilities the Cubs had, University of Nebraska was way better than what we had. Now, obviously, we spent $40 million just on the clubhouse to be able to upgrade it. But it's, it was the same sort of thing. It's like, how can you expect these people to be world champions right. if you don't have world-class facilities? I mean, that's yeah. where it starts. you got to start treating your people like they're world-class if you want them to behave world-class. That's exactly right. And you don't get to pick and choose excellence, do you? Right. You get exactly. to say, well, we're going to be excellent here in the clubhouse. You make a commitment of overall excellence or you're not going to be excellent in any area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously you played till '96, mm-hmm. and then you went into broadcasting. So how did that jump make? Well, first I met my wife there. Oh, you met from playing yeah. for the Colts. Yep. So oh, I forgot. I was going to get to Angie, yep, but okay. Yep. Sorry, I, I have to. I'm learning. You know, after 26 years, uh, but she was just finishing law school in India uh, at Indiana. She's a, a well. Tell the story because she she didn't really like you at first. Yeah, time. no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I had never been on a blind date in my life, but I had met, her name was Jenny, this person that actually was dating a woman on the team. And she was asking me questions about my background. And, and she goes, well, I have someone for you. And I'm, I'm not interested in the blind. I said, you know, right. no, 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 she grew up on a farm in Indiana. I think you guys would be great. She's just finishing law school. And I was like, well, that, you know. And so I did summon up the courage to call her. And you know, Angie said, hey, thank you. Jenny told me you might be calling. I'm, I really appreciate it. I'd, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm, I'm studying for the right bar now. exam. So <laughs> if you can just give me six weeks and call me well, back. Hey, that's better than washing your hair, right? Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, and the bar is a legit excuse. It, it was legit. And yeah. by the way, she passed the bar, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. But There's a lot of stress involved. There's a lot of stress. And, but I was, you know, humiliated even further, Pete. I mean, not only was I being a bad football player on the field, but now this person <laughs> won't even talk to me. But in the end, like, hey, don't you know I'm a football player? (laughs) (laughs) She didn't really care about that. So people love that story. But uh, yeah, so uh, we finished up, and then I, uh, after about my third year, um, wait. So she she took the bar, and then she agreed to go out with him. Yes, she did. Okay. In fact, she brought the, the piece of mail over to my house because you have to wait for a period of time, you know, and, and to yeah. hear from the bar if you oh, pass right, the exam. Right. Oh, she you wanted and to wait so to she, get the bar notice back before she would go out to Well, me? no, we were kind of dating at that point. Oh, okay. But I just remember when she brought that to the house, she opened it in front of me. Oh, that's cool. And it was a very thin thing, and she thought that was going to be a letter that basically said, you didn't pass like the bar. F. But yeah. actually, it, it, it was that she passed, so... You know, then I had this illustrious three-year career in the NFL where I, I, I think I am still in most of the top flops of all time lists. <laughs> if you Google, I'm not real proud of that. But in the end, after, you know, my, sh- I had my right elbow and, and both shoulders reconstructed, my wife said to me, you know, isn't there something else you can do? This right. seems kind of dumb. 
And so that kind of started the process of, of looking for alternate options career-wise. And so that's, so you were, so you went looking for broadcasting. Is that fair? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I actually moved back to Lincoln. Didn't really know what to do. Uh, I met with coach Osborne, had lunch at the training table. And, you know, I, I, I tell this to people a lot. I mean, I think people miss, you know, when the cheering stops, I think mm-hmm. about that a lot. You know, we, we lift up our student athletes at Nebraska, which is wonderful. Yeah. And sometimes I think we forget a little bit about when the cheering stops. And if there would be anybody that would be very well positioned to transition, I would have, you know, I came from a great family, I had a great education, had a wonderful supportive wife. It was a tough time, yeah. you know, because as you, f- quote, fail, it's the first time I failed at that level in athletics. I came back to, we came back to Lincoln. We bought a house here in, in Williamsburg and, and met with Coach Osborne. I said, you know, I don't really know what I want to do and thought about coaching. And he said, no. So I don't know if he knew I'd be a terrible coach or what, but <laughs> he said, I don't think that'd be good for you, Trev. He said, you're a family guy and, you know, football coaching is not for, for family it's a, I don't think people appreciate I don't think they appreciate the, it. The level of commitment it takes to be a football coach. How many hours? It's not like, oh, I just show up in August and we – you know, put together some plays and then we, yeah, we work hard during the season, but I get to January and I'm off. It's not that at all. I mean, the whole thing, it just, it never stops. Our whole staff is essentially out right now recruiting. Yeah. So we have an off week and people think, well, they can, you know, catch up with their family. So when they are here, they're not here at home very often. And so um, he helped and I actually took a job at NBC Bank. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was just getting started in institutionalized investments and learning and I got a phone call from Jim Walton, who's the president of CNN. And they said that they were starting this network, network. called CNN Sports Illustrated. Yeah. That was going to be a, and he, we, they were going to start a college football show and he wanted to know if I would audition. And I said, no, I'm not interested in that. I don't know how to do broadcasting. And so when I went home and I told my wife, she said, you said what? <laughs> and uh, so I called him back and I did. And, you know, back to what Coach Osborne taught us and out on the farm, you know, I'm, if, if I get my mind in a certain position where I'm going to try something, then I'm, I'm going to go all in and I'm yeah. going to try to win. And so there were, there were three candidates, and I just kept calling the executive producer. His name's Bill Galvin. And I said, Bill, I, I am not going to show up in Atlanta with no preparation. And yeah. he goes, well, it's not really fair for me, Trev, to, to tell you what you ought to be doing because I'm not doing that with the other candidates. And, but it wouldn't be bad if you thought about this. And so the more I'd call him and press him, I got, and so I did. I did a bunch of work, and, and, and ultimately I got the job, not because I was better than the other two, but one was a, a seven-time All-Pro for the Bears. One was that? Uh, Sean Gale. Oh, sure. Man, he was there on the Bears and went to the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The other was Don Mikowski, who was the quarterback for the Packers. Okay. And then there was me. I got the job because they offered me $30,000. <laughs> and I think the other two were like, I'm not going to take that. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I took the approach of saying, wait a minute, you're going to pay me $30,000 to talk to about have football? Fun? Yeah. I think I'll do it. <laughs> and so ultimately that started it. And, and then I ended up doing that 11 years. Cool. Which, uh, which then led to me at about 39. You know, in 2008, now I was working at CBS, and our kids were getting older. But by, by the later years, they're paying more than thirty thousand dollars, though, right? Yes, <laughs> uh, yes, um, yeah, and probably didn't deserve it, but it, yeah, it's a different deal then. But I, I started getting to the point: is this, is this what I'm doing with the rest of my life? Yeah, you know. So, how did the connection to UNO to become the athletic director happen then? Well, the truth is, in 2008, I was working at CBS Sports Network, and. Coach Osborne called and said, it looks like they're going to name me the athletic director in Lincoln. And have you ever thought about working in athletic administration? And I hadn't because I didn't even know what that meant. (laughs) Um, I had no idea what all the people that, you know, were serving us were doing. But and so I told my wife, you know, and she said, well, you know, we were pretty ingrained in our church there and school. And you've been in the neighborhood for 11 years. My wife really enjoyed uh, Marietta, Georgia is where we were. And, but I was getting really tired. I was flying. A lot of travel. Oh, I flew to New York every week to the, in LaGuardia. Yeah, we, fun sh- airport. Yeah. And, and then I did it. So I did shows during the week, studio shows. I did an actual college football game on Saturday. And then I flew directly to an NFL game. And I did an NFL game on Westwood. So when we were home? Uh, two days a week. Two days a week, yeah. And, you know, now it wasn't year round. Right. But our kids were getting involved in, like, sports. sports. And yeah. so dads never had any of their... It just really hurt me when my little 
Ashton said, why doesn't dad come to my soccer games? Yeah. So I was kind of at that point where I was thinking, you know, maybe I've got to think about something different, but kind of went through that process a little bit, but it didn't, it just didn't feel right. Yeah. So I did not come back, went back to work at, at CBS and in 2009, you know, I'd always keep up to date with the Omaha right. World Herald, Lincoln Journal Star, all the sports writers. And, and I think it was Tom Chattel who wrote, you know, another AD leaves UNO. It's 17 ADs in 30 years. Holy cow. Now that some of that was interim. Huh? But I, and I knew UNO had a, an institution. I didn't know much about their athletic department. But I sent an email as a joke, frankly, to a friend who was mad at me that I didn't come to Lincoln. And four hours later, a board of regent member called and said, would you be interested in applying for the job? Because we don't, we can't get anybody to be interested. And I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, Pete. <laughs> but I should have been ding ding right there. <laughs> if no one wants why this job, want this why job? would I want this job? Right. But I started. You know, we were really. I really wanted to get back to the Midwest, and I wanted our kids to be influenced by the work ethic and Midwestern, right. you know, values and, and culture. And so my wife had softened a little bit at that point to to family, and and so. Went through the process with John Christensen and ultimately was privileged to get hired there in 2009. All right, so let's jump to one of the big decisions that you made as AD, which was to close down the football program and the wrestling program mm -hmm. and to really focus on hockey mm -hmm. as a Division One sport. That could not have been an easy decision to make. Talk to me about like who was a fan of that, who was not a fan of that. How did you make that decision? I think it's going to tie into some of our other conversations later on here, so... Well, you're going to see a common theme, I hope, is because I, you know, very early on at UNO, and it's one of the things I always remind myself of, even here in Lincoln, this is not my athletic department. Right. You know, I happen you're to be sitting in the chair. I'm a yeah. steward for a period of time, just like, you know, you and your role as a governor. And we're going to do the very best we can, not just for today, but to think about the future and to position this place to ensure that it's, uh, you know, viable long term. But, you know, early on, we had a lot of financial problems, mm -hmm. you know, and there was a real disconnect with the academic side of the house and the athletic department. And football's expensive, right? Football is expensive, you know, and the, the chief challenge was, is, you know, when we'd get our budget, it was voluntary support to athletics and involuntary support. <laughs> and, and I said, so it, what's this involuntary? And so we had this massive deficit and every year we were getting quote involuntary support, which is Nebraska taxpayer dollars. Uh -huh. That's really what it is. So at a school like UNO, you have some self-generated revenue, but primarily at Division II, it's a subsidized vision. You're right. using athletics in a way, and you'll do, you know, you'll have equivalent scholarships, so there is some tuition revenue generation to offset that. The problem with that vision, it works very well at a Missouri Western. It works very well at a Northwest Missouri State, where that's the only institution in that community. Right. People can really rally. It works very well at Kearney. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it an institution can, yeah. that you can really... The market in Omaha is pretty tough right. when you've got the flagship institution 40 miles away and you've and got Creighton yeah. right there. You know, so the market had sort of spoken that it, we just didn't have the type of support where the self-generated revenue was at a reasonable amount. So how'd you pick hockey? Well, hockey was the only existing Division One sport at that time. Okay. Hockey was the so so hockey so was you started. Said we're going to focus on that. Okay. Right. So in 1996, when Don Leahy was the athletic director and Del Weber was the chancellor, they already were feeling the financial challenges. with, And so the vision at that point, when they went to the community and business leaders, was how do we – what you're always balancing is it's okay to have subsidy in athletics, but what is the right mix? Like right. What, is, what is the right percentage? You know, what, 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 is there value behind the spend? And so what clearly the community had said and, and faculty, our faculty and even our students was that – we had gotten inverted. You know, we were only generating 40% self-generated and 60% was subsidized by taxpayer. And there was no vision to change that with, right. ex, you know, rising expenses. That, that number was just going to grow. So Don Leahy and Del Weber started hockey to generate revenue to take pressure off the subsidized piece. So at the Civic Auditorium, 8,000 folks, you know, they generated and hockey made money. Oh, no kidding. Hockey oh, yeah. made money. And still does. Yeah. We lost profitability in hockey when hockey was moved to the Quest Center. And the challenge was you had a hard time leveraging your ticket when you had, you know, demand for 7,000 fans yeah, and you had supply see, yeah. of 17, 18,000. Right. And we had a rental expense that we just, we just, it literally took us to our knees, yeah. you know, of, of 50, 
40 some thousand dollars per game we played there. So we had to really rethink our business model. And so I went and I, my first few months on, on the job, I'm trying to figure out Chancellor Christensen, our relationship. And so when did you come to BAD? What was the year? That was 2009. 2009, Karen. And so that was in March. My wife was mad at me. I didn't know that I didn't officially start until July 1st, the start of the fiscal year. So when I got hired, I got my car and I drove to Omaha. Right. And so I didn't get paid the like, first sorry, month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> because, but I didn't know any different. I thought I thought I was supposed to come to work. You know, it's one of those things you're always supposed to ask in the yeah. interview, you know, Trev. My like... wife gets so mad at me. I've signed more contracts that she has told me, as your counsel, I would not sign that contract. <laughs> uh, but um, so. I'm glad my wife's not an attorney. <laughs> yeah. So, but it was great. And then I said to John, I said, John, define victory for me. Uh, I like to win. And he said, Trev, I need you to present me with a 25-year plan for financial stability. Oh, wow. Okay. Athletics. And I didn't even know what that meant. And I'm not sure John know what that, knew what that meant. But I, I went back. We weren't even, we were still in an apartment at that point. Three kids, a dog and a bird. My wife is starting to question my sanity about taking this job. And I said, uh, in trouble. And, uh, and she said, okay, well, well what are you going to do? And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ask for help from everybody in right. the community. And if at the end we kept our place in South Carolina, I said, if in the end there's no interest from business leaders and donors, then we can say they're not interested in UNO Athletics. Right. And that's fine. Yeah. But we can't solve this, our problem. She right. says, okay. So I didn't really know all the, you know, I knew the names, but there was one name I did know, and that was Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And I just decided <laughs> I'm going to start at the top. All right. And so I reached out to, to ask for a meeting with him. And he responded through his secretary, but he wanted me to send a letter. About what do you want to talk about? About what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So I did that. And I want to just take a little side break here. This is one of the things that's the most unique about the state of Nebraska. And people like you, and I know you and I have talked about this previously, don't ever underestimate the impact that you in a leadership position make when you choose to take that meeting. Yeah. It doesn't mean that Warren Buffett just solved all our problems, but he gave me confidence to keep going. Yeah. You know, and I think what's really unique about our state is if you are willing to ask for help and you go, the leadership, men and women in our state, will help you. They, they will help mentor you. Yeah. They will. So I met with him. Exil- I mean, I, w- I never forget going to the security desk at the uh, Kiewit Center there. And I told the gentleman, I have a meeting with, you know, and I was so scared that I would mess this up. So I was literally 45 minutes early. I thought, gosh, what if I get a flat tire? Of course, we're <laughs> three blocks from his office at right. UNO. But I get there and I told the security guy that I have a meeting with Mr. Buffett. And he started laughing at me, like seriously. And I said, no, I, I really do. So he called up there and Okay. So, you know, it was wonderful. I won't get into the details, but he could not have been more gracious, just gracious, accommodating. He told me his story, asked me my story, and then he made a recommendation to me. He said, I think you ought to reach out to Walter Scott. Didn't know who that was. So set up a meeting with him. And then ultimately, that's what led to all of it. Didn't Walter at the time have an office in that same building? He did. <laughs> I spent a lot of time at the Kiewit building. There you go. And so was Ken Stinson and right. others. And so I, um, I went to meet with him next, and I said, uh, I need help. And he said, I will help you. And he asked me, but I'm interested in, will you have the courage to execute if right. we run a good process? Yeah. Again, I, I'd never participated and of course, my naive self well, said, uh, absolutely, yeah. but I had no idea, you know, where we were going to go. And I don't, he didn't at the time either, but, but ultimately what that led to was 12 years of mentorship. I, I just, I mean, I, I can't possibly thank the Scott family more. He, oh, that's cool. he met with me every month, if not two to three times a month, Pete, any awesome. problem I had, I would go as long as I didn't complain. Right. There's no complaining, no whining. Right. Just these are the facts. Yeah, don't bring me problems, bring me don't, solutions. Yep. Right. So we went through a period of, and he said, I'm going to create a committee and, and we're going to start working on this. And I said, okay. And so he came up with a committee. And, so who was on that committee? So Ken Stinson, Dana Bradford, late Jim Young, 
Uh, and then JB was the president at that time, mm -hmm. and so he was occasionally in there, and, and basically me. Okay. It was very small, and my job each week, they gave me a, assignments, is each week I made a presentation in the, in the boardroom. Most of it financially driven, you know, right. creating uses and sources document. And you remember, I'm, we're, we're in a, we didn't have a CFO at UNO Athletics. I had never had a secretary in 12 years. Oh, no kidding. Mm -mm. So we were as lean of an operation as we could because we had to. We, yeah. we, we had no resources. And, and I was very cognizant of the fact that any person we hired was essentially like me going in my neighborhood and saying, are you okay? <laughs> Would you give me some more taxpayer money right. because I need help? And right. so I was very, very concerned about that. And, and, and so we went to work, and we spent almost 16 months, and we went through everything. We first... We first looked at, should we get rid of the entire athletic department? So the other thing that I was doing while we were doing this is I had a three-ring binder of putting information. Because you remember, a lot of these leaders didn't know anything about things like Title IX. Right. They don't understand anything about core sport requirements in the NCAA or core sport requirements right. in your conference. I mean, at one point, and I won't say who, looked at the uses and sources document and said, this is going to be easy and quick. We're going to drop every sport but hockey. It's like, well, well that's that. not possible. Yeah. You know, you can't. And so we were, you know, I was advocating and, ed and, and, and educating as we went. But we looked at, should we drop sports entirely? And the quick feeling was we would be the first and only public university in the nation with over 10,000 students that didn't sponsor sports to the NCAA. So that didn't take long. <laughs> then <laughs> that one got written off pretty quickly. Yeah, that got written off pretty quickly. So then the, the, basically, what is the mix of sports, given the, res the restraints, you know, the, right. the the requirements to have certain sports and so forth? What was the best mix? Is that really what you're looking at then? Then we were looking at can we remain at Division Two with all of our sports, keep mm -hmm. hockey or keep football, keep wrestling, but regain profitability in hockey. And we went down that path because that included, of course, what ultimately led to Baxter Arena. Right. which was regaining profitability. The problem with that is that was a five-year vision. Right. You would immediately regain profitability. But then in the end, the expenses of Division II subsidize all those programs is going to outrun your ability uh -huh. to self-generate the hockey revenue. And we were trying to create a long-term vision. So then we went to Division One, And it was how do we proactively... And the university was pretty clear that, listen, you can do whatever you want, but you just can't demand... You know, more money, three times the, yeah. the state subsidy. Right. So we were trying to fit this vision in. And what we found what was amazing was back to your earlier comment about excellence across the board. What was really hard for us is when you have one program that's division one, you really have a choice. You're either going to run the whole department like it's division one. Right. Or you're going to run the whole department like it's division two. Right. Well, part of if, if you're a hockey team that is everything else is being run like division two, your hockey team's not going to be that good. That's exactly right. Yeah. And part of the requirements of division one, Pete, was you have to have a compliance department. You have to invest oh, in these right. core areas. Yeah. And so what, what I was able to, to show, and, and we could walk through together, was we're already investing in some of the core areas for one sport that we're not going to have a significant additional investment if the rest were Division One. And so as we move forward, what, what the challenge was, is that the NCAA had, because schools like the one I'm at now, were against all these schools moving to Division One, So they right. created a four-year moratorium to stop schools from transitioning to Division One, Because the reason why we all transitioned to Division One is we were trying to get at self-generated revenue like NCAA men's basketball tournament. And so the more schools that are Division One, the more dilutes the pie that's being sent right. out. So the strategy on the larger schools at that time was to say, you cannot move to Division One unless you have a certifiable offer from a conference. So that limits the number right. of people who can go. Because what was happening is schools would say, we're going to go to Division One. They couldn't get into a conference, and they're wandering around. So there's really only two options for us, three kind of. But you had this, you had the Missouri Valley Conference that Creighton was in at the time. Well, that wasn't realistic because our budget, you know, M Missouri Valley Conference wasn't interested in UNO. You had the Horizon League that had some, you know, tepid interest, but, but they were, you know, they're way over in Wisconsin and the travel costs. And then there was this Summit League, which was interesting. Many of our former peers at Division Two had moved up to Division One, the Dakota schools, mm -hmm. and you had Oral Roberts and Western Illinois and some of those programs. And in diving into their budgets, even ours was pretty, pretty well in line. 
The challenge was we had to get an invite from them. And the way our sport offerings were set up, you know, we, we had hockey, we had football, we had wrestling. None of those sports were offered in the Summit League. So what the commissioner was telling me at the time is your women's sports are aligned great, Trev. Yeah. But you only have three men's sports that are aligned with the Summit League. So we don't really fit. And there was other schools that are trying to get, there was an open spot because of yeah. school. Yeah. And so this was part of the decision-making too, is that we, so that's why we started men's soccer, men's golf, is now we had five to sports align. Yeah. to align. We then took, football was costing about a million four a year, mostly taxpayer dollars. We didn't have a lot of attendance. Obviously, we don't have ticket uh, uh, television revenue. And, and so, you know, again, we did all that research. If we moved to Division One, we're probably gonna have to double what that budget was. So we used the savings in those sports to start the other ones. To lift the other one, to lift the rest of the department. Yeah. So we saved a million nine, spent five hundred thousand in the other two, and used those resources to invest in the students and some of the ancillary support units to bring it to Division One. All right. So Trev, you spent a lot of time talking about how you got here. But sorry, that about, was convoluted. That was long. That was long, Trev. So hey, just so you know, this podcast is only supposed to be an hour <laughs> long, just so you know. Well, we can cut it. Yeah. It's you know <laughs> it is videotaped. Good point. So, but I want what I want to get into is how did you go out and sell that thing? Because there were people who thought that was a good idea. Obviously, the people that were on your committee. But there was also people who said, oh, my gosh, you're getting rid of UNO football. You can't do that. Or did you find that people were like, yeah, you're right. You should get rid of UNO football. Was it a pretty easy sell? I would say, you know, we, we couldn't sell it prior to the announcement. And that was part of the problem. Right. And, and that was the real challenge. You couldn't leak that, right? We couldn't. Yeah. And I would tell you that I don't think. I had the same problem with the canal here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't announce it ahead of time. Yeah. The legislature's like, "What? What's this?" Yeah. Right. And I would tell you that I didn't do a very good job of communicating post. Mm -hmm. But part of the strategy and the reason why, and the same thing we're going to do here and have been doing here, is I knew that I needed to have a core group of leaders that, when asked, "Hey, what do you think of you know?" I needed people like Jim Young, a UNO grad, to right. say, "I am aware of the decision." I, I think it's it. the right decision, yeah. and very quickly you get the support of. And we knew that there were going to be people that, no matter what, were never going to. But could have done a lot better job, Pete. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, there was but no it, playbook. But, but for it was that. a courageous decision at the time, and it worked out really, really well. I mean, yeah, I, you I know, hockey's so. been to the Frozen Four. We obviously get great programs that come to Omaha to play hockey. I mean, it's really become a big part of the community. Yeah, it's it's worked out well. And you know, one of the things that we tried to do and think differently about Pete is at that level. It, it, you know, it, UNO, if you have a singular vision of just wins and losses, right. it really falls short. You have to use the athletic department as a tool to help grow the public institution and ultimately serve the community. That was the change in vision. Yeah. And so where UNO was trying to grow enrollment, we have 17 high school. I still say we. I mean, I, UNO will always be a part of me. I love that place. But 17 high school graduations in Omaha happen in Baxter Arena. That's cool. Getting exposed to the UNO brand. Yeah. And helping to partner with, and John and I, John was a great partner, and we, we took the approach of saying, hey, we're still trying to win, don't get me wrong, but how do we activate the athletic department as a tool to really put the entire institution? We changed the brand. Um, we, you know, we, we created some unity of purpose. Um, that We eliminated the bad. Here's what I did, Pete. So I, would, I went to our team, and the whole athletic department, you know, they, they couldn't stand the people on the academic side. Well, they don't support us, and they don't like us. And so I asked our team in an all-staff meeting, who's the largest donor to the UNO Athletic Department? And, you know, you come up with the names. Your name might have come up. I don't remember. And I said, you're all wrong. It's Dr. B.J. Reed, the senior vice chancellor for academic affairs. Because <laughs> he controls that budget. Right. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to start gonna treating nice to him. him like a donor. Right, exactly. And so we got him a shirt. We brought him to hockey games, and all of a sudden, we started really working on that relationship and bringing people together, and it was a game changer. Yeah. And so now, the faculty, uh, and, and then, of course, we inverted the now UNO self-generating 60%, and they're subsidized 40%, and that was the vision, is how can we create value around that subsidy? So, you know, I think that there, there, there'll always be challenges there. There's always, at that level, going to be resource challenges, but UNO's on a, on a great trajectory. Cool. So that led to then becoming the athletic director at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So how did that all come out? Yeah, so I... Only a shorter version, okay? <laughs> my wife always tells me, you talk way too much. I'm sorry, it's oh, just don't all... My wife tells me that too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we spent 12 years well, We do need to keep it tight. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were, we were on our way to South Carolina for a vacation when we got the news that, you know, Nebraska had made a change and, you know, 
you know, I'd communicated to several donors and others all along that, listen, I, I love the University of Nebraska. I'd have been happy to be at UNO the rest of my career. Yeah. I felt I worked at the University of Nebraska. You know my strengths. You know my weaknesses. I'm perfectly imperfect. But if I can help in any other way, I'm happy to help. And and ultimately that led to, you know, some conversation with Chancellor Green and, you know, felt like there was some alignment and fit. And Ted Carter was a, was a big part of that too. And so between Chancellor Green and, and President Carter, I really thought there was some alignment there that we could get some really good things done. All right. Good deal. Yeah. Well, obviously you made tough decisions at UNO. Now you got tough decisions to make here or have made tough decisions at University of Nebraska. Specifically, I mean, obviously volleyball is going around long swimmingly well. <laughs> Coach Cook does a great job. No tough decisions there. No tough decisions there, but you got a tough you got tough stuff going on in the basketball program. Mm -hmm. And then of course the thing that's making all the headlines right now is the football program. Mm -hmm. And you know, you mentioned about how UNO had seventeen, including interim athletic directors in thirty years or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously we've had turnover in the athletic department, uh, the AD position, but also in the coaching position. So talk a little bit about kind of where do you see we are with Husker football right now and where do we go from here? Well, it's a great question, and we're, we're still seeking to define that. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm a strong believer in this. You know, athletic directors and the administrators run the athletic department. Coaches coach and coaches right. recruit. And I think that's part of why you've seen all that turnover is we've we've lost our identity on who plays what role and and you have a unified vision around that. But, you know, we're we're we're, we're in a tough spot with football, Pete. And yeah, I, I think I we know. need to be honest with three and ourselves. I last year. We're one and three this year. You know, we part of part of and this is part of what I learned through this process is you, you have to have the courage to examine the. The realities of your current situation and we need to recognize that you know we're, we're we're at the bottom we got a long ways to go but i'm really optimistic about is the fact that as i think about the future i think about where we are as an institution first of all god bless our fan base pete and yeah, i know you're strong. part of it but you 385 know, sellouts now is that what we're up to <laughs> yeah and you know in spite of what that records look like i sat there in the georgia southern game after we've given up whatever, 700, 700 yards, yards. Yeah. and, you know, 600, yeah. and it's late in the fourth quarter and there's all these people <clears throat> still there. And so we have this fan base. We have the Go Big project coming online this summer, $165 million project. So obviously support for that from the Nebraskans to build that, right? A tremendous amount of support. The, the Big Ten media rights deal. That's you know, we just announced our yeah. new MMR deal, which is $300 million over the next 15 years, which will be one of, if not the richest deal from college athletics. So we so have it all. Get, so, but you got to go out and get a coach, right? right? Mickey Joseph is uh, one of your candidates, I presume. Yeah, I mean, we're we're so, supporting Mickey as much as we can, and but, you, but you're going to go also look at outside. We have to, right? So, how do you sell that prospective candidate on coming to Nebraska? Like, what's your sales pitch to say, "Hey, you want to come here"? Well, there's a couple things that are beyond anything we've done that have naturally and organically happened that I think position us well with with some of the changes in the media rights deal the, the big there's a couple conferences that have separated themselves a little bit pete from the, the other conferences big ten, being one of them, yeah. big ten and the sec just based yeah. on resources so yeah. you know coaches and agents aren't naive to right. about 30 35 jobs that allow them the opportunity not not all coaches right. are drawn to that you know right. so i think we have an opportunity there i think the other thing that we have is an opportunity is I think this is the first time in a long time when we've had a transition where there hasn't been all kinds of, you know, you could argue whether or not we should have made the change when we did. But I don't think you have a divided fan base over whether a faint change could have happened. There's not a lot of politics involved. You're not walking into a situation where nine wins isn't enough. Right. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I'm just talking from a fan standpoint now. I think fans in Nebraska really wanted Scott Frost to be successful. So he's a hometown, right? Like, mm -hmm. he's from Nebraska. He gets our culture. But for whatever reason, he wasn't able to put wins on the on the you know record, and that's part of what you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. You have to win games. You want to develop fine young men, but you also have to win football games, and you don't get to do one without the other. Yeah. So you got to win, and it just whatever for the reason, it just wasn't happening. That's I, so I I don't think that there's a lot of people who are saying, yeah, this was you know something that wasn't going to happen. Well, we, we were all in. We wanted Scott to be successful. That was the, the ultimate uh, objective when I started a year and a half ago. And, but as you know, you've run successful organizations, and even the governor's office, at the end of the day, there has to be accountability. Yeah, and making personal change is tough. Yeah. All right, so here's a question, though, I do hear, is why didn't you wait and save yourself you know, $15 million or $7 million, whatever the number was? It, it's a great question. And you know, what I started seeing 
and you know, in, particularly in our state, Pete, when, when that kind of scrutiny and, and challenge comes on the head coach, it's unavoidable in this state that it all goes on the kids uh, and students. And I have a particular interest in, in those young people only because I lived it too. And I, I interact with them and I see it on their face and I watch it. And you got to understand, you know, a lot of these young people, they're not going to go play in the NFL. This is it right. for them. This yeah. is their window. Right. And, you know, with nine games left in the season, I, I genuinely, and I still do, believe that there's an opportunity for them to, to experience, you know, that there's been a lot of hard work that's gone in there. And I just yeah. didn't think it was fair to them. And, you know, the other thing is, the reality is, right, wrong, or different, years ago, the university made a commitment, and you know, to, to Scott and, and signed him to a contract. And at the end of the day, the university lives up to their commitments. And so there was a lot of thought into that, Pete, and, and, and I understand both sides. I just chose at the end to think, and my recommendation to the president was, um, for the benefit of the students, let's give them an opportunity with nine games left to try to salvage something this season. And I know what yeah. we look like against Oklahoma, kind of unfair to Mickey in four days to First say, series hey, go fix really it. Good. First series yeah, was really good. Yeah, I was living the, yeah. the highlight for seven minutes, yeah. but... Now with two weeks off, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, we played one conference game. Yeah. So we have an opportunity here, and I and, uh, would really love to see those young men get a chance well, to savor success. I'll editorialize a little bit, too, because on a point that you didn't mention, but one of the ways I see that is also is like, look, Scott struggled last year. He was struggling this year. You want to make personal decisions. Like if you're going to be running an organization, you want to make personal decisions quickly, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be you know, slow in your consideration but fast when you, when you made a decision. And I think it actually says to the rest of the world that, hey, we weren't going to, like, draw this out and nickel and dime a state hero. Scott's mm -hmm. a state hero. We're not going to nickel and dime a state hero when it's clear that this is not a fit for either one of us anymore. We're going to make the decision. And, yeah, we know it's going to cost us money, but we're going to do the right thing. And I think that's, that, I thought that was a great message to send, frankly. Well, that's exactly what I thought, Pete, is when the decision's made, um, is it really fair to let the kids and the coach just Suffer, flip in the wind yeah. for the next month and a half so that we can say, you know, we, we were able to. Uh, but on the other side, I understand people's perspective. It is a lot of money. It's a gross amount of money, and uh, it's unfortunate. Um, but uh, that, that was my decision, too. Yeah. So what's the process to find the new coach? Well, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people. The great thing is, you know, I got a lot of AD colleagues and just walking through some of the process they went through. It's been very helpful you know, I, I have talked to a couple sitting head coaches not to try to hire them here, guys I got a lot of respect for who've really built. You know, when I look at our job right now, Pete, this is, you know, you think back across the history, you know, Tom Osborne built this infrastructure. Frank inherited it. But as we go forward, we need to find a coach that has expertise and understanding of how to build a football culture and infrastructure that's sustainable. Yeah. No more short-term visions around immediate, you know, obviously we need to have success. But I think there are coaches out there, and, and there's more than one, that have a good track record of building, you know, when the program was at the bottom and who haven't just built it, you know, at a low level. Maybe they've built it here, then they've built it at a BCS level. So there's a track record, and there's no guarantee in these jobs. Right. but. You know, we've just been busy, um, focused on, you know, two pages of what are our values? What do we believe in? How do we want to operate? What do we want this thing to look like? Yeah. At the end of the day, Start with the end of I mind. tell all of our coaches, you know, you just need to put it, you don't have to win every game, but you better put a product on the field, the court, the pool, the track that is reflective of what Nebraskans believe in. Yeah. Meaning, you know, they play together, they play for each other, they right. play hard, they're fundamentally sound, they're disciplined, they're tough, and they never, ever quit. Yeah. And um, so I... We'll have interest. We do have interest. Um, we also want to see, you know, we want to support Mickey and, and see how that transpires. But the hard part about this is, you know, I know there was a lot of angst about the number of days, you know, when Steve Peterson, this will be the longest search in the history of Nebraska athletics merely because of, you know, the coaches that you're interested in talking to yeah, are in the busy. middle of they their season. Jobs. They got day jobs right now. <laughs> and those coaches that, that are in the middle of their season that are 3-0 and or whatever, that are if they call now, I'd have less interest in them only because – so we'll see how it transitions, but yeah. we'll, we'll have a great group of people that will help, help as well. Well, it reminds me – I invested in a, a defense company one time. It was run by a bunch of Top Gun fighter pilots. And I was having dinner with one night. They're like, oh, yeah, we never wanted to go to a high-performing squadron. What are you going to do with that? 
We wanted to go to one of the worst performing squadrons and turn it around yeah. so we can make a name for ourselves. So I think that's the kind of attitude you want to have from somebody who's going to take this job. Somebody will see this as just a diamond in the rough and an incredible opportunity because we talked about our fan base. I often sit there and look at that fan base and I think to myself, can you imagine if we were good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. this place would be bonkers, Pete. Yeah, no kidding. And the right person who believes in development, who believes in building and culture and all of those things, I think will jump at this opportunity. And that's the kind of person you want, somebody yeah. who who sees this as an incredible opportunity, because I think yeah. it is. Yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of running out of time, but I, there's a couple other topics I want to hit. Maybe I'll combine them together. Talk to me about, because I think they do impact each other. Talk to me about where do you see it going with name, Jim, like, mm -hmm. name image likeness, NIL, and the transfer portal. How is that going to impact college football, and where do we, where's that going? Those will, they'll both have some transition to them. I think ultimately part of the challenge is the two of them are, are, are not disconnected. There's this very concern about you know, the legal challenges around collusion, and that's what's really impacted it. But I think first and foremost, we have to somehow get our hands around this unlimited freedom of movement. Right. It, it, you can't possibly, it's not in the best interest of the student athletes. Well, it means um, you can have a different team every year. That's right. And, and, and there how, needs how to- do you, How do you start playing for each other if you've got different people in every position every year? Well, I mean, you, you have a hard time building a culture. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think, so that's part of it. Uh, on the NIL thing, I think you're going to continue down the path we're going right now until we get either the courts to decide or NIL gets taken in-house. A lot of our donors have said, hey, listen, we love to support NIL. We just rather deal with the university, though, yeah. you know, because there's less risk there than there is. And so part of what we've done, part of our MMR deal is there's an NIL component to it that, that contributes to that. So we've got a couple pieces of in infrastructure in place that if indeed the rules change and you can take it in-house, I think ultimately the two of them will be connected where, you know, when, I, when you get an NFL contract, I mean, the NFL has a lot better situation right now than, than college football. Yeah. I mean, at least there's a contract and there's expectations. But until we can somehow figure out, you know, what that compensation looks like, nobody denies that eventually they're going to get paid. The question is when and how much. Yeah. And by the way, if we're going to pay uh, football players. How do you play guards? Well, not only that, oh, but whatever too. Yeah. you're going to be paying on the female side, the yeah, same yeah, equivalent. Title nine, right? That's right. Yeah, And so that's why we've been so senior focused on, on our business model, because the better we run our business, the less of an impact and the less pain it'll have when if, for say, you know, by chance, a, a, a certain portion of distribution from the Big Ten is, is decreased because it needs to go to, to pay for name, image, and likeness, you know, how are we going to run our business operations in that respect? You're worried that college football programs become the minor league for the NFL, that it becomes professionalized that way? You know, I think I think there there is some of that concern, but I think you know the the toothpaste is out of the tube, Pete. Yeah, yeah. We're not putting I it agree. back in, and so you know, and and we own that. You know, the you know the the NCAA, the the members, we own that. We didn't get ahead of this, and ultimately the courts have dictated some of this stuff to us. So, you know, I I think the courts will continue to dictate. I mean, there's a real concern at the conference levels about you know, coming out with any sort of, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do this because it'll be challenged in court and we'll lose. Uh, many of us athletic directors have our approach is, well, we're already losing. Right. <laughs> Let's try a different strategy and, and take our <laughs> right. chances. But it is a time of fundamental change and it will feel different. But I think with the right leader in football, I think with the right culture builder and with the N, I think we can maintain those things that are very near and dear to our alumni and fan base. There will be some professional components to it. I mean, you're already seeing some of it. Our players are out doing commercials. Right. Doesn't seem to be the end of the world. But we just need to have some controls around it because there's nothing right now. Yeah. It's the Wild West. Yep. All right. So anything that we didn't cover that you would have liked to hit upon? Well, I think we really ought to go back to that whole process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Really? Because we spent a lot of time on it, Trev, no. just saying. Well, just cut, just cut all that out. No, I, I appreciate you, Pete, for the leadership mm -hmm. you've done for our state. Yeah, well, thanks. Team effort, like we were talking about. Yeah, it's team no. effort. I mean, this is a great state. Yeah, yep, the best uh, place in the world. It is. And the University of Nebraska has benefited from the relationship with you and, yeah, and the legislature. And, and so we're going to keep working hard and, and ensure that this is still a great place to live and work and uh, have, our, have your young people educated. All right, so. great. 
Well, Trev, thanks very much. Appreciate you joining me here. Thank you. And best of luck as you go through the transitions you're going through. I know you've made tough decisions in the past, so I know you'll do a good job with these as well. And, you know, I think I've had my season tickets for about 25 years now, so I'm excited to see where the program is going to go, um, you know, moving forward. And Thank hopefully you. we can pull out a few more wins this year yet. That's the goal. All right. Appreciate it, Pete. Great. Well, again, folks, thank you very much for joining us on another episode of the Nebraska Way. You can, you know, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that sort of great stuff. We're at GovRickets. Obviously, you know, total shameless self-promotion. Go give us five-star ratings so we can get more people on. That would be great. You can always email me at pete.ricketts at nebraska.gov. And we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of the Nebraska Way. Paid for by Pete Ricketts for Governor, 1610 N Street, Suite 100, Lincoln, Nebraska, 68508.